You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Dr. Sharon Kerr, an educator specialising in inclusive curriculum for students with a disability, utilising assistive technologies and the training of community service professionals. Sharon has had over 30 years experience working with students with a wide range of disabilities. She is widely recognised as having expertise in maximising student engagement for students with intellectual, sensory, learning, psychological and physical disabilities. In this episode, we explore Sharon's work as General Manager at the Australian College of Disability and Community Services, a registered training organisation, RTO, focusing on professional development of teachers, support workers and other staff in the sector. We find out more about Sharon's background in social welfare, Japanese teaching, as well as pioneering work in educational multimedia and e-learning. We chat about Sharon's PhD research, White Questions, Black Answers, designed to support Indigenous students with a disability in the higher education sector. Sharon outlines her student support framework developed from this research to be used by universities, TAFEs and RTOs across Australia. Sharon offers insights into universal design, the use of assisted technology in education and the profound practicalities of leading with a heart of service. Here's my conversation with Dr. Sharon Kerr. Well, it's very nice to see you again, Sharon. It's been a while. I think we chatted chatted at the end of last year. Uh, I guess the world's a different place now. In a way, there's a big lot happening. (laughs) But I thought we could start off with um, what, where, how did you, uh, how did we get here? You know, where did, what were you doing when you were kind of, um, you know, studying as a younger person or, you know, what's, what were you interested in? Um, oh goodness me, Mark! It's it's uh, the uh, I guess when looking at at where we got to or how did I get where we are is where we are at the moment. And I guess at the moment, I've um, just last year I finished my PhD, and I was looking. Uh, my thesis title was White Questions, Black Answers, and I was looking at the barriers for Indigenous students with a disability to engage with higher education. So, and I'm now general manager of an RTO, which is specialising in disability and community services. It's acdcs.edu.au, the Australian College of Disability and Community Services. So that's that's where we are now. That's where I am now. And the the, uh, sitting here, Zooming from home and... uh, teaching everywhere, but uh, in these crazy times that we are with this pandemic. But I guess, how did I get here and who am I? And <laughs> as, gosh, gosh, oh gosh. Look, I, I'm someone who, right from the time, I was a very, very young person. I was blessed with a heart of service. 
I uh, even when I was 14, I was instigating and running camps for street kids. I was running a breakfast program for, for children. I just, as I said, I was blessed that right from the start, it seemed that I was able to look outside of myself and, and see the need that was there and see what I could do about it. I, as a young person, I came from a, a um, I lived with my mother and my brother. I was uh, in a single parent family. We were very, very poor. Um, I didn't even have a bed. I just used to have, you know, a mattress on the floor and we never had anything really. And I worked as a cleaner from the time that I was 14 and nine months and I worked full time and while I went to school and I desperately wanted to be a social worker, desperately, desperately. And, uh, but I bombed out because of the um, working full time and looking, I was a carer for my mother and um, helping her and, um, Yes, so that then started sort of a, an unusual career and uh, from not being able to get into social work, I started work in an insurance company and while I was at the insurance company, I went to TAFE and started to learn to type and I was a volunteer with the New South Wales Deaf Society and I was running a deaf youth group um, back then, and uh, which was really funny. I still can remember um, doing uh, the Melbourne Cup in sign language and trying to, to engage everyone in that or, and taking people out. <laughs> wow. The Melbourne roller Cup skating. Sign language. Roller, <laughs> roller skating and, uh, the, you know, trying to get everyone's attention. And uh, But that was just such a blessed um, experience and I was working with two beautiful people who were both deaf and blind and I started working um, with them on independent living skills. From there, the, the um, staff at the Deaf Society said, Sharon, you should really go back and do welfare and I desperately wanted to and uh, the, and I went as what used to be called a mature age student. And so I did my um, associate diploma in social welfare and I focused on drugs and alcohol and disability. And uh, anyway, so one thing led to another. I, uh, I um, love that course. I love the work. And when I met my husband, um, I was actually doing, he wasn't there, but I was doing a placement uh, at Matthew Talbot uh, in the cross. So I was working on the streets in the cross and um, really, really loving that work. I met my husband through a mutual friend and uh, we got married very soon after. I'm a very decisive person and we had... Uh, we, I think we were engaged six weeks after we met, and uh, which was lovely, which was 40 years ago now. And uh, David was um, 
had a, a, a position he was doing purchasing for the government of aircraft. He had um, economist background. He also has been a paraplegic since he was 14. So um, it was stepping more into that world of seeing what access barriers are there, there for people who have disability. So we got married and lo and behold, we fell pregnant with twins and I had we had three kids in 18 months. And uh, so from there I realised that I could no longer be working with homeless people and <laughs> because I, I had this lovely little family to be looking after. So I went back to, to study and started studying at Macquarie University and I thought I'll become a teacher. I'll, I'll, that'll be good with all these kids. And uh, so I thought what sort of teacher will they need? So I'll start doing maths and economics, which I started, but Japanese had just been offered. And one thing led to another and uh, I ended up uh, with a Japanese major and I became a Japanese language teacher and I did that for a number of years. Um, so it was a, an unusual start. I found it really hard to learn Japanese. I was 26 at the time when I was studying and I found it really hard. I can still remember walking into the class and <laughs> seeing that everything was in Japanese and I don't know what I was thinking, but it never occurred to me that I'd have to learn to read and write Japanese. I just thought I'd have to be able to, to speak it, you know. But anyway, so but uh, I found it a real challenge. But because it, it was a challenge, I actually became a really good teacher later on because I'd be able to say to the kids, if I can do it, you can do it. And um, the students that I was teaching for a number of years, every year I'd get someone in the top 10 places in the state. And um, in the last year I taught, I got students, all of the one class in the top 10%. So the Department of Education asked me on a special thing at Macquarie University if I'd come back and teach teachers how to teach Japanese. So I started at, um, at Macquarie University as a lecturer in education and um, the, uh, and I had, that led to me being very concerned of the quality of teachers that were going out there. It was almost anyone who ate sushi was teaching Japanese. And uh, so I thought, look, we've got to get a better standard happening here. And um, I worked with a dear, dear friend, Tony Brook, and his wife, who was my dearest friend, Susan Brook. And uh, we developed one of the first multimedia packages, Japanese Tutor. And uh, so using sound and, and visuals and um, it was really quite an innovative program. So that in turn then, this story's nearly ending, don't worry. <laughs> but the, the, um, that then led to me being asked to introduce online education at uh, Macquarie University and I started there as an educational developer, then what went year? to manager for online. What, what year was this? 
around? This would have been 2002. Yeah. 2002. So that that um, yeah. Japanese letter, the multimedia, as they used to call it. No, the Japanese mean, Tudor was 1992. That's the yeah, first one. I was, was going to say, yeah. 90s, that was a lot earlier. Yeah, 1992, that was the first one that was developed. There was a golfing package as well and there was ours. And, uh, it, look, it was it was really, really innovative, really innovative. And um, but, In what, so format? That was, what, what format was this resource released on that these had the huge floppy disks <laughs> and then it went down to the smaller smaller disks and yeah they, they, that's how long it was it was in those days the computers just didn't have the capacity that they have now and uh, but it was it was really successful and it, it made people start thinking about using computers for education and it seems ridiculous now that that was ever an issue, but it was. And I remember when I was at Macquarie University and in the position uh, of starting up the online education there, we did it through um, OLA, Open Learning Australia, and uh, people were saying, you'd be lucky if you've got 20 people who will ever want to learn online. And uh, so, and of course, the rest is history, literally, that uh, we had... Um, that took off with online education. Other universities copied it. And from there, I was concerned about students who had sensory loss and couldn't access the, the online learning. So what we did is started up a national centre, Macquarie University Accessibility Services, which was providing support to students with disability right across Australia, putting materials in Braille or if they couldn't access the learning to put it in the format they could. So I don't know, Mark, is that too much in, in one mouthful to, to tell you? But that's in a nutshell how I got to, to being focused on disability and to having the, the heart that I have for inclusion in education and ensuring that people have the opportunity to have that access to education and the opportunities it provides. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we've you've obviously cutting across a broad range of areas, compassionate areas, mm. teaching Japanese technology for, for a long period of time. So what type of projects or you know what sort of activities are you involved in these days right well as i mentioned at the very beginning one of the well what i'm actually employed as and what i'm doing is heading up a registered training organization uh, which is teaching uh, people globally actually we're running classes internationally uh, to work in the caring professions, and that's ACDCS, the Australian College of Disability and Community Services. But if you dug deep, a little bit deeper, and you're asking me the why behind the what and how did that happen, 
when I was giving my, my background and talking about developing the Japanese tutor and the technology and mentioning how started up a national service that uh, was providing support for people with disability, what was happening around that time, and now we're talking around 2004 and to, to, uh, up to 2008, is that assistive technologies were starting to be developed. What are, what are assistive technologies? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. For yeah. Our so, listeners. Well, you're using assistive technologies every day. What do you when mean? When you put on your glasses. When you put on your glasses, oh, the yes. technology that's assisting you. But I'm sure now with your phone, you're using text-to-speech. I do. I saw you doing that text. earlier. Yeah. I used that yeah, feature. Yeah, speech-to-text. And all of those technologies have had their roots in meeting the needs of people with disability. So whereas previously you would have to convert a whole lot of books back at the Macquarie University Accessibility Days, we would scan each page of an academic text, then we would edit that page, and then we put it into electronic format so that people could access their, their, um, their, their work. Now with the event of eBooks and with Universal Design, people can access, if they can't see, they can listen to what's on the website, they can listen to their readings, they can see captions happening um, in their online Zoom sessions or Google Meet sessions. All of that had its roots in working with people with disabilities. So one of the things we've been using is Google Meet and it's a free software uh, that you can use. And when you go into it, if you look at the options, you can actually turn on captioning. And this has been absolutely fantastic, not just for people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but also for people whose first language isn't English, because often that they've studied English in their own country, but really struggle with the Australian accent. And so being able to read the captioning of it while you're speaking, it gives them something to a reference to go back on and to see what's been said. So that's my hot tip of an assistive technology to, to look at is Google Meet. But I really, Mark, I would suggest that whatever technology you're holding in your hand, I would be Googling assistive technologies uh, for, for that device and you are going to be blown away by all of the stuff that's there that will make every day so much easier. Again, back, and this is coming to, the, to where the story is now, Mark, but back then too, I was also very concerned, even when we were doing all of these conversions, what was happening for Indigenous people with disabilities or Indigenous students and why they weren't being represented by people wanting materials converted for them. And I came up with the idea back then, which we then did research and were able to establish, of if you just assumed that 
everyone could access assistive technologies if they needed to. It wouldn't mean that they had to have a diagnosed disability to be able to listen to their readings. They wouldn't have to have literacy in English to be able to listen to the text. And so by designing your courses so that they could be using these technologies right from the start, uh, that, that is, um, would that help? Now, I was doing that at Macquarie and the chapter ended at Macquarie. Dear friends and colleagues of mine, uh, who have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage, asked me if I would continue with the research so that I could get the evidence to show that using this universal design uh, would be able to assist Indigenous students. So I enrolled in a PhD with Sydney University and I had three wonderful supervisors I had uh, John Gilroy, who's an Aboriginal academic. I had uh, Trevor Parmenter, uh, Emeritus Professor Trevor Parmenter. And later on, I had uh, Professor Emerita Patricia O'Brien. So I had wonderful, wonderful supervisors. And I had this Indigenous advisory group made up of these people who I'd worked with at Macquarie University. And they followed me through the five years of doing the PhD. And what I did was ask the questions I looked at. Uh, what are the barriers for Indigenous students with a disability to engage with higher education? And I listened to the stories of people with disability, Indigenous people with disability who had attempted to engage with the system. They're, they're good stories, they're bad stories. And then I, so that was the, the um, uh, uh, quantitative, um, the qualitative side of it. And then for the quantitative side of the research, I actually looked at what the universities were doing. And that all then led to the development of a model, which did include universal design so that people can access um, assistive technologies, but it included more. It included cultural safety so that when we're teaching, we are teaching in a way that is respectful of the heritage of the people who we're teaching, that we understand that we have a different history and the impact of our history and who we are on people and listening deeply to what the students are requiring. And the other thing that came out of that research was person-centeredness of putting the person you're serving at the heart of what you're doing. So those, that, that model that was developed through the, the research, I'm now using uh, in this registered training organisation that is uh, owned and operated by the Centre for Disability Studies, which is affiliated with the University of Sydney for research. Um, and using this model uh, to develop courses and to teach into the sector, both teach people who are wanting to serve people who have disability 
and to also teach people who do have disability. So that's roughly, I guess, where, where I am now and using that model. So this teaching model, what, yeah. what does that look like? Can you give us maybe an example of something, mm. how it's used maybe? Yeah. It's, Mark, it's, um, I believe that we all have abilities and we all have disabilities. And in teaching people, to teach people with disability or to serve people with disability or to teach people who have disability is not teaching a, a special group of people. I can give you an example with, um, and it goes back, even though this model has been developed over the last few years, but I'll give an example of an experience that one of um, the students had while I was with Macquarie University um, with the accessibility services there. And we had a wonderful um, young woman who was living in the Pilbara and she had, I think, a seven-year-old who went to school. And seven-year-old was having trouble with reading. And the school did an assessment on the little girl and found out that she had dyslexia and that she was working really hard, she was trying really hard, but she just couldn't access the text on the page. And that was holding her back. So they organised assistive technologies for her at the school. The mother then said, hey, I can't read either. I wonder if I've got a, a if I've got a disability too. Now she had had lived a life without anything being diagnosed, just thinking that she wasn't academic and wasn't a reader. Sure enough, they did assessments on her and found that she also had dyslexia. And uh, we were able to bring her over to Sydney and teach her how to use the assistive technologies and to listen to her readings. She then went on, did her qualifications through a Western Australia university. Um, it was Murdoch University actually. And then actually went on to teaching at the school where her daughter was. Life-changing just to be able to access learning and overcome barriers that were there that she was totally unaware of that she had. But if you're thinking now about the technologies that you use every day. I you know, was. How did you know? Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that. We just, yeah. And, and if someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you now Google it. So you've got like a spare spare brain in your hand. And uh, in this little computer that we hold in our hands, it has so much capacity to increase font sizes, to read things to us, to record our thoughts so that we can listen to it back. You know, all of those things are what um, we need to ensure 
that when we're designing curriculum, that people can access the learning by using the technology that's in their hand. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, relatively, in the scheme of things, this sort of technology is mm. wonderful as it is. It's a, it's life changing, mm. but it's relatively new. And so, what sort of areas, like where could it potentially expand, or you know? What are some areas that are still needing a little bit of work or, you know, I guess it's all good and well to have this teaching model and you've proven, I'm assuming, with your evidence that it works and it's useful, but what are some of those other obstacles or or challenges that, that kind of the future has? When I was doing my research for my thesis and listening to the stories of Indigenous people with disabilities and their journeys that they had. It was obvious that access to education was only part of the, the story. So with, with all of this, with the making um, education accessible so that if you're blind or if you're deaf or if you can't move, or if you can't concentrate, or if you've got dyslexia, or if you can't sleep, or whatever your disabilities are, having access to the education is one thing. But if discrimination is still so great out in society that people aren't given the opportunity to use the skills and knowledge that they've gained in their learning, then the challenge I feel is have I almost promoted a false promise because we've given, by giving people access to education and them having the, the, the tools ready to go, that when they go out there to get the jobs, they're facing discrimination in the workplace. And that is a major, major obstacle that needs to be overcome. We have such an opportunity now, we really do. You and I are both sitting at home, working from home. For many people with disabilities, being able to, to work from home and not have to, to face the physical obstacles of getting to work and a work environment is an absolute godsend if we just provide them with the opportunity to work from home. If we can open up our concepts of assistive technologies and being fearful of, well, how can someone be blind and participate in our meetings and then realise, well, all we have to do is make sure that instead of uh, putting images up on the screen that we send them an email that they can read with their assistive technologies, um, then there, there's a path through for us working out there to be prepared to open both our hearts and our minds to say, okay, 
You're saying you can do this job. I need to learn from you how that's going to work and what I need to do to make that happen for you. And I like uh, just just hearing you talk, it reminds me of um, some of the conversations I had when I was at Macquarie about um, supporting academics with planning for reasonable adjustment of assessments, yeah. for example. But I like yeah. what you're saying because it's that sort of like that idea as applied to a workplace or yeah. So what what sort of advice or you know what are the, what are the options of of strengthening somebody's ability to offer reasonable adjustment or cultural adjustment or you know I don't know what you call it. The the first step is is to listen to them to find out from they they are the the specialists of their own situation to listen to them to find out what works from for them if you've got someone for example who has mental health issues and anxiety it may be that it's fine by your workplace if they're working variable hours it may not impact on the work especially as i said now we're working from home and to, to be prepared to negotiate with them to that they do their eight hours over the course of a 24-hour day rather than having to be between the nine to five. Uh, but listening is the big thing and being prepared to learn. It's not expensive. And there are various government, if, if there are expenses involved in buying technologies, pardon me, or, or putting a... a um, a printer at a certain height. They're the government schemes that can address that now, but the government schemes can't address people's attitudes. And we just have to say, we're prepared to, to learn from you and we're going to make this work. Yeah, so I guess it's um, I guess it's like any sort of change, you know, requires that little bit of a uh, contemplation as to, you know, what's going on in this situation yeah. and then who's involved and then, you know, lots of listening and then it's kind of like, well, what's the, what, what needs to be adjusted or what's working currently, what's really kind of could be improved. Yeah. But what really upsets me, though, is that it's been the law since 1992 to be inclusive. The Disability Discrimination Act came in in 1992. And by having those conversations and listening, we're not just, we're not being nice people. We're, we're doing our lawful duty. When, if we don't do that, we are discriminating. And uh, I think we just have to, to realise this is our responsibility. I, I was always bemused when the smoking ban came in and overnight, you know, the signs went up that uh, no smoking inside premises and anywhere and the whole community got on board with, with um, uh, making sure environments were smoke-free. But something like the Disability Discrimination Act that came in 1992 and all of these years later, we're still 
trying to get people, coercing people to do what the legislation says and uh, to, to listen to people and to make those adjustments that are required in the workplace so that they can be effective employees. So I guess I'm just wondering what's at play then, you know, if listening is kind of, you know, some things are working or some things are kind of getting a bit of traction, but, you know, Mm. like I guess these are the complexities of society or, you know, uh, Mm. implementation Mm. of, of legislative frameworks or the rest of it. But then it's sort of like something like smoking, I guess you've got an object and it's measurable and then it's there or it's not there. But then, I mean, you know, what do you, what do you, like it's, it's a huge, yeah. well, potentially huge, it's complex. Yeah, yeah. It is, but, but let's hope that this pandemic that we've had and where we've all had to learn how to do things differently as far as our daily work will make us more open to listening to how other people uh, approach their work in different ways and uh, and give them a chance to do so. Mm. I, I might just uh, pipe in there. I just remember when I worked for TAFE, it was in the 90s and it was the buying tickets for the Sydney Olympics and then that became mm. this huge issue because the website was not accessible. The outcome was because I was an employee at TAFE at the time, there was an immediate change in our workplace behaviour and attitude. It was just not negotiable. We needed to embed accessible options into every piece of learning material and resource that we were producing. And so it was the beginnings of this idea of universal design. And so... When I left there and I went to other workplaces that were also educationally based, I was quite taken aback thinking, oh, this has been around for a while. I just thought it was just the everyday common practice. But to see that it wasn't, that was a bit of an eye-opener. And I guess it speaks to what you were saying earlier about the the kind of this has been in since 1992. Clearly there's that lag and you think, yeah. yes, it's kind of um, that, that kind of ongoing puzzle of why don't these things get moving? I have noticed more recently the corporate sector in education especially mm. has gotten on board. Maybe there was a kind of tipping point with technology or, you know, big, big vendors mm. like Microsoft, et cetera. Mm. I mean, it is a kind of, mm. a bit of a, an ongoing puzzle that's moving in time. And so, and then I guess these, mm. as you were mm. saying, these devices that, mobile phone that has apps yeah. in it that's yeah. kind of yeah. like unlocked a huge kind of it's normalized these um technology that didn't happen by accident you know that that's that's has has started from from people with disabilities you know it's uh, from from trying to solve a problem I think that's that, that each of those technologies it's significant mm. that's kind of mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Oh. It didn't happen by accident. Because that's an no, important, no. It's an important no. kind of idea to get across that it's like that the horse leading the cart or, you know, but what, what do you mean it didn't happen by accident? Just you already answered yeah. it or you already spoke on it earlier, but just to kind of 
yeah. strengthen that. The um, and it's still the case is the 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 technologies that are being still being developed are being developed because of the need that's being created from uh, disability. Over a number of years, I've gone to um, a very big conference over in San Diego, and it's called CSUN, and CSUN, C-S-U-N, and uh, it's showcasing these assistive technologies from all around the world, and many, many hundreds of people go and they have the showcase of, of these technologies. And what I was shocked to learn was that the many of the technologies that I thought were amazing to, to help people access their computers using their mind or without moving were, were brought about to because of the need created by returns servicemen who were injured at war. And so it was the, the government responding and different companies responding to the needs of the veterans. And uh, so the need created by disability uh, is the, it's the irritant in the oyster to make the pearl of, of, um, of the solution. It's, uh, and, and that's with, with all of these different technologies. Every single one of them has, has a story based in um, technologies that you would use, as we've said before, every day now and don't think anything of it. Um, the, when you ring up and you hear someone say that the, the computer saying we are using the um, recording for training purposes, and we all think, oh, it's training a person on how to, to, uh, to help us on the phone. But the training purposes is actually to train the technology in voice recognition. And uh, it's collecting those, those, the sounds and the, and the way that we speak. And, but again, all of that has come about uh, because for people who could not hear and needed to have that text, that speech con uh, converted into text so that they could uh, access it. As I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm working now with this RTO that we've started up. And it is really important to me that we use all of these principles of universal design, of cultural safety, of person-centeredness with the people we're teaching because that way they can access education but they can also learn firsthand of what it feels like to be treated in that way and to be treated as an individual. And so for me, it's the students that matter and through providing a caring experience to them, that they in turn then will go out and be caring practitioners and listen to the people that they are working with and 
help those people access the best possible life for them. From what you're outlining, it's really clear this makes a difference to people's lives. It does. It does, Mark, and, and I'm really excited about it. And we've, we've seen the evidence and we've seen that it is making a difference. And so from here on, it's onwards and upwards. Uh, we are working now, we being the, the RTO that I mentioned, we're working and we're going into India and we're going into other countries and we're using these principles of universal design, of person-centredness, of cultural safety to increase and enhance the quality of education, to increase the opportunities for people with disability globally. In this episode, I chatted with Dr Sharon Kerr, an educator specialising in providing training to the disability and community services sector. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to more information about Sharon, including links to her research and the Australian College of Disability and Community Services, ACDCS. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Thank you.